Baptist, and I trust that you're saying good morning back right now. Even though I can't hear you, I'm trusting that, that you're saying that. So glad that you tuned in this morning. I pray that you're feeling encouraged. What a great time of worship. That was a lot of fun. It's been a lot of years since I've been on the drum, so I, I enjoyed doing that. Uh, have you ever thought that being forgetful could be deadly? There was a novel that came out called 100 Years of Solitude. And in that novel, the author describes a village that was plagued by insomnia. And it was, as a result of that insomnia, people forgan, they, they began to forget everything. And in their forgetfulness, they forgot uh, what the animals were around them. They forgot how to do basic things. So a man in that village, a man named Jose, decided he was going to start labeling everything. He started labeling the livestock and the things around the house. He put uh, labels on things like table and chair and clock. And he went on to the corral where the animals were and he put labels on them like cow and goat, pig and hen and banana. Because his people were, were suffering from this plague of insomnia, they were forgetting everything. And he decided, as it got worse, things were have, they would have to get even more explicit. So on the side of a cow, he put a sign that read this. This is the cow. She must be milked every morning so that she will produce milk. And the milk must be boiled in order to be mixed with coffee to make coffee and milk. Thus they were living in a reality that was slipping away momentarily captured by words, but soon they even forgot the value of letters. It got so low that a sign had to be put at the entrance to the town that said, God exists. What happens when we forget about God? Because forgetting is something that we humans are, are very good at. What happens when people forget? And people do have a tendency to forget. As a matter of fact, there was, there was a, a researcher by the name of Cesar Hidalgo at MIT. And he did a study on how long it takes a famous person to be forgotten. And he used the example of someone that maybe you have or haven't heard about. It's the most famous tennis player of all time. Now just think for a minute, who do you believe the most famous tennis player of all time is. Because when I read this, I was thinking, well, it's probably Serena Williams or Roger Federer or McEnroe. It was none of them. It was a guy by the name of Rene Lacoste. And the only reason I know the name Lacoste is because if you're a child of the 80s, you probably owned a, an Izod jacket at some time. The full label said Izod Lacoste. And this tennis player... Uh, was actually called the, the crocodile, which is where Isaac got its insignia. But nobody knew Rene Lacoste as the most famous tennis player of all time, even though by all the measurements that he used, he was the most famous. And he went on to say this. Whenever he looked at all the data and drew on sources like Billboard and Spotify, Wikipedia, the trademark office, he was trying to figure out, well, how long does it take someone to be forgotten by oral communication if they're famous, he came to this conclusion. The universal decay of collective memory and attention concludes that people and things are kept alive through oral communication from about 5 to 30 years. 
Now, the Bible makes a very big deal about remembering things. It goes as far as to say that when you forget some things about God, it is actually an act of rebellion. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 106, verse 7, David is talking about the sins of the forefathers. You heard that story that Jody read this morning. These Israelites living in Egypt that saw all those plagues happen, and yet when they left Israel, I'm sorry, when they left Egypt, when they got to the bank of the Red Sea, it was though they had forgotten everything that happened. This is what David wrote about them. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. They got nervous. They got scared because they had forgotten the wonders that God had done. And you know what? In such a time as this, in such a time as this, as we are facing this, this virus, I know in my lifetime nothing like this has happened before. As jobs are being furloughed and lost, as the income stops coming in, as people you know start to get sick, as we start to see like in New York City this past week, the ICUs are becoming overwhelmed. How can we remember the steadfast, unchanging love of God? In these turbulent and strange times, how can we remember this, this steadfast love of God's? It's so important at such a time as this. And the text I want to talk to you about today, it comes from uh, the book of Exodus. You've heard a little bit about it already. And uh, while these Israelites, they lived in Egypt for about 400 years, generation after generation, they were known there. They enjoyed a, a life of peace there, but their numbers grew huge. And their numbers grew, so it made a Pharaoh very, very nervous. And he decided, we need to enslave these Israelites. So when these Israelites were enslaved, they began calling out to God. And eventually God brought them a prophet named Moses. And Moses went to the Pharaoh and he said, you're going to let God's children go. And he said, no. So what did God do? He brought in plague after plague after plague. Nine plagues happened. Still Pharaoh's heart was hard. He wouldn't let the Israelites go. So then we get to this 10th plague. And God said, I'm going to take the firstborn child from every house in Egypt and from houses in Israel that do not follow my explicit instructions to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel. So that's the background. We're going to step now into this passage, Exodus chapter 12. We'll look at verses 5 through 15. Exodus is, uh, chapter 12, verses 5 through 15. Even though you're sitting there at home, and I'm sure you're very comfy, you've got your coffee in hand, I would ask you to read these words off the screen with me as I read them to you. Exodus chapter 12, verses 5 through 15. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat, of it. do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. Its head with its legs and its inner parts. 
and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. As we approach this Easter Sunday, we're taking a prophetic look at the Easter events that will occur. When we look in the book of Luke, uh, Luke chapter uh, 24, we see Christ approaching two men. He's, he's died. He's been resurrected. He's approaching two men on the road to Emmaus. And they're having this conversation with each other about everything that's happened. They're lamenting the death of Christ. And Jesus sneaks up on them and he cuts in on their conversation. In Luke chapter 24, he says this. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So we're taking this walk now through these Old Testament prophecies as we approach Easter. There are so many pointers to the Lamb that was to come, to the Messiah that was to come. It's all laid out right there, as Christ said, in the prophets. So we're going to continue taking a look at these parallels. And this morning, we're going to look specifically at that event called the Passover that happened there in Egypt. And we'll look at these parallels of the Passover to the final coming of Christ. And in that, I want to look at these four things, these four parallels. First, we'll see the lamb sacrificed for us. They sacrificed the lamb then without blemish. Our lamb came without blemish. And then secondly, we'll see the lamb consumed. This was a prefiguring or a, a foreshadowing of communion. Third, we'll talk more about what's going on with this leaven. Uh, it's to be absolutely avoided. Why was that? And then lastly, we'll look at the freedom purchased for us. Freedom was purchased for those Israelites from Egypt. It was purchased for us from sin. And then we'll talk practically, okay, how do we go about remembering these things? So let's then step into this. And let's take a look at this lamb. Uh, and we see the description in verses 5 and 6. It says there, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So we have the description of this lamb given, a lamb with no visible defects. This would be sacrificing the very best lamb that the owner had. If there had been any temptation to 
get rid of a land that was maybe sickly or skinny or wasn't going to be much good for anything else. This would have taken the place of that. Remember, this lamb was going to be a substitute for the firstborn in their family. And that's very significant. I like what a man by the name of Keel says about this. He says, freedom from blemish and injury not only befitted the, sac the sacredness of the purpose to which they were devoted, but was a symbol of the moral integrity of the person represented by the sacrifice. It was to be a male as taking the place of the male firstborn of Israel and a year old because it was not till then that it reached the full, fresh vigor of its life. So we see this lamb as a foreshadowing. A foreshadowing of something is a, an indicator and a pointer to something that's going to be coming later down the road. In this case, this lamb is pointing to a perfect lamb that's to come. And then in John chapter 1, this connection is made apparent. It says in John chapter 1, 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you, Eric, very much. So we see this picture now of the Lamb that is coming. The perfect Lamb that's going to take away the sins of the world. And this, this is so well illustrated by something that happened in the Taj Mahal Palace in Mumbai, India. This was on November 26, 2008. Some gunmen burst into the Taj Mahal, and they just started shooting the place up. They actually left 200 people dead. There was one guest that described how he and his friends were eating dinner when they started hearing these gunshots. Then someone grabbed him, pulled him under the table, and when the assassins started going through, making sure everyone was dead, he was skipped over. And when somebody asked him how it was he lived when everybody else died, he said this, I suppose because I was covered in someone else's blood and they took me for dead. This is just the perfect metaphor of what God did for us. We were covered by the blood of this perfect lamb, Jesus Christ, that we may have eternal life. So Jesus was the perfect and final lamb that takes away the sin of the world. No other sacrifice but Jesus Christ could have accomplished the ultimate work of God. He was the one that had to come and do it. He was the only suitable substitute for all mankind who had come before him, who was alive during his present time, and who was to come. So we see that first, that perfect lamb chosen. And then secondly... Uh, we see the lamb consumed by us. Then in verses 8 through 11, the lamb itself was to be consumed. So they would kill it. They would put the blood on the doorpost and the lentil. And then they were to fully cook it, the entire thing from head to tail. Now, that, that was, the text was very specific, and the instructions were very specific on that, because it was the pagans that would have eaten an animal raw. So that's not they were, what they were commanded to do. Then they were, they were told to eat bitter herbs that symbolized the bitterness of Egypt that they were going through. They were, ha they were to have completely burned the entire animal and leave nothing behind. Perhaps that was God's way of saying, I'm going to be the one to sustain you when I take you out of here so that you won't need to take anything with you. And this was a meal that was to be eaten with leaving in mind. Notice the text said that 
the people to be dressed. They had their sandals on, their, their cloak, their staff. They were ready to eat this and then go. See, these were strangers leaving a strange land. They were, they were sojourners there for a little while, and now it was time to leave. Now, this is a meal that the Jews continue to eat uh, to this very day. As a matter of fact, in verse 14, they were given a command, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. And maybe at some point you've participated in one of these Seder dinners or one of these Passover feasts where you go through all these different elements that were laid out there in the book of Exodus. But when Jesus sat down with his disciples in the New Testament to eat this very Passover meal on the 14th day of the month, the month of Nisan, it brought on a whole new meaning. So again, we see this New Testament parallel going on. We see it in Matthew chapter 26. They had gathered in the upper room. This would have been the eve of Christ's crucifixion. And speaking to his disciples, he said this. Now, as they were, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So now this Passover is taking on a different picture. So then now we Christians in modern times, we take communion regularly as we commemorate the shed blood of Christ, the perfect lamb, and in this sense, we are consuming this. We are consuming it not in the exact same way they did the Passover. We're consuming it in this new way. But Jesus said, this is my body. I am the lamb sacrificed for you. So we go and we consume it. And then third, we have this picture of this leaven uh, that, that's, that's to be avoided. So what's going on with this? And as we saw already, the Israelites were to eat bread that didn't have leaven in it. Leaven is a type of yeast. It would make the bread rise. And they were given further instructions in verse 15. It said, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. I go, oh, wow, this is a, a pretty, I, I mean, what's the big deal with going on with this leaven? I mean, so... So this is what we have to understand. Throughout the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, leaven or yeast was, was a symbol of sin. And yeast would work its way into all the parts of the bread and, and make its way all the way through there just like sin would. So after the Passover, these Israelites were to understand that they were set apart. They were set apart. They were unlike who they were before. And God is setting them apart by virtue of getting rid of the sin in their life. And one commentary puts it this way. The absence of yeast suggested that those who were under the safety of shed blood were free from the corruption of sin before a holy God. Now this is an image again that's repeated in the New Testament. 
We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. That's You're being referred to as like a lump of dough with, with no leaven in it. As you really are unleavened, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So then, we are a new people. We are to live like new people. It makes me wonder, if we were truly living like the consecrated and set-apart kind of people that we now are, that's our identity, why is it we aren't having a deeper impact in the world? There's a sociologist uh, at Berkeley uh, named Robert Bella, and he studies the influence that religious ha religion has on its community. And he, it's interesting, he says this. He said, we should not underestimate the significance of the small group of people who have a new vision of a just and gentle world. The quality of a culture may be changed when 2% of its people have a new vision. Now, the statistic in the United States, um, as far as Christians get, about 30% of, of Americans profess Christianity. So the question I couldn't help but ask myself is, so why aren't we changing the culture more? Or is it possible that the culture is more changing us? I want to move on. Because finally we see the freedom that was purchased for us. We see this freedom that was purchased for us. The blood of the Lamb truly freed the Israelites. We see this wonderful promise in verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So you saw a picture earlier that looks something like this. The Israelites were commanded to put that blood on the two doorposts on either side. Then the lintel, that's that that's that uh, board at the very top. And when God saw that, he would pass over them. But notice there was a requirement. It's very interesting. The Israelites did not get a free pass just because they were ethnically Jewish. There was a step of faith that was required in the process. They had to take this step of faith to believe that they had to do what God commanded Put the blood on the doorpost. Only then would their house be passed over. The Egyptians did not have this opportunity at redemption, but these Israelites did. And it took an act of faith in order for their oldest child to live. Those who would proceed on would then move to the promised land. Now those of us who have trusted the blood of the Lamb, we have also been freed. They were freed from Egypt to go to the promised land, but we've also been freed. It says in John 8, 34 through 36, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, the harm that sin brings will never come on you. 
Now, I want to encourage you to do something right now. If you have never trusted Christ, you're, you're sitting there, you may be alone, you may be with family, but if you have never truly trusted Christ as your Savior, I'm going to invite you to do that right now. Right there, wherever you're at, you can simply close your eyes and repeat a prayer similar to the one I'm about to say. It's not, there's no magic formula of words that saves you. It's, it comes down to faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But I would just encourage you to say a prayer something like this. Lord, I understand that I am a sinner. And Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. And I am trusting in you and you alone to save me from the sin that I was born with. You know, if you said that prayer this morning, you are free from sin. You are free from the guilt that comes with it. You are free from the shame that comes with it. And I hope that if you did say that prayer this morning for the first time, that you'll let us know, that you'll reach out to someone here at the church, reach out to a church. If you're not, uh, if you don't live here in Sheridan, then wherever you are, reach out to someone, get to church, and let them know that you are a brand new believer. Because we have been freed from the power of sin. The Israelites were given this gift of salvation, and they were given also the way by which they were to remember it. You know, right along in that narrative, we see that God spent just as much time teaching the Israelites to remember this as he did telling them what was going to happen, the feasts and everything that was to come. So then how can we also remember what it is Christ has done for us? You know, we, we always, and, and especially in a time like this, Daily, we have to be remembering the promises of God. So how do we do that? Well, first of all, uh, we need to be taking communion. We need to be taking communion. It is essential that we're doing this. God has commanded this, us to do this. Now, we are living in a very interesting time. As a matter of fact, I'm still ruminating on uh, communion to come. You know, we've got a very special time of year that's coming up. Our, our Easter holidays are coming up. This is the time where we... Uh, not completely unlike these Jews who celebrate the Passover dinner, we celebrate what it is that Christ has done for us. We don't do it annually. We celebrate Easter annually, but monthly we take communion to commemorate what it is Christ has done. The only qualification for communion is to have trusted Christ as your Savior. Now, like I said, we're ruminating on what communion may look like depending on how long we're going to be in our current circumstances. We'll let you know about that. But communion is very special. It helps us look to the past to see what Christ has done. It, it, it points to the present and into the community around us. You know, the word community is derived from communion. We celebrate community with, with each other. We, we take communion together, not completely unlike those Israelites who enjoyed that meal together to commemorate what had happened. We take communion, and we take it when we gather together. But there's also this future aspect to communion. It looks forward to a time when we will physically share a meal with God himself. So we take communion until Christ comes back because we need to keep remembering. There's a wonderful theologian named D.A. Carson. He wrote about this. He said, we are to do this until he comes. In the new heaven and the new earth, we're not going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper anymore. 
Will we then have to remember his death when we have been so transformed that we are no longer tempted by sin or defection, no longer prone to wander? We will no longer have some right that will call us to remember, for we will remember forever. Because of that, this is a temporary right that itself anticipates the Lord's return. So again, communion is one of the primary ways that we repeatedly and periodically remember what it was that Christ has done for us. And then secondly, remove the leaven in your life. Remove the leaven in your life. This is such an important question to ask yourself. How am I being impacted by sin that is always uh, creeping in? How am I being shaped by the people around me? There's a quote uh, by Henri Nouwen uh, where he, he talks about the, the sin in his own life. He says this, he says, I love Jesus but want to hold on to my friends even when they do not lead me closer to Jesus. I love Jesus but want to hold on to my own independence even when it brings me no real freedom. I love Jesus but do not want to lose the respect of my professional colleagues even though the respect does not make me grow spiritually. I love Jesus, but do not want to give up my writing, travel, and speaking plans, even when they are often more to my glory than God's. See, sin can be so sneaky, and it can be so insidious, and it sneaks in often in ways we don't realize. You know, we as Christians very much need to be with unbelievers, but we have to ask ourselves some very honest questions. As we spend more and more time around those who don't believe what we believe, are we being susceptible to their wrong ideas and habits creeping in? We want to influence the world for Christ, and to do that, we have to be among unbelievers. The question is, how close should we get? Because when negative shaping starts taking place, when our speech looks more and more like their speech, when our habits look more and more like the habits of the world, we have to ask ourselves, Am I having a greater impact on them, or are they having a greater impact on me? So be very careful. Always be on the lookout for the sin that is creeping in, this, this leaven or this yeast the text was talking about. And then finally, memorize key verses. Memorize some key verses. Uh, realize, I, I realize that memorization is something that some people are very good at it. And then some of us have a, have a really hard time. Uh, it's interesting, though, um, you, you need to have some verses right at the tips of your fingers, particularly in the kinds of times that we are living in right now, when things don't make sense, when you're very prone to being fearful and anxious. There's a few verses that you need to remember. As a matter of fact, I'm going to recommend two. First is Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, when, when we're in times like we're in right now and things are just not making sense and you're like, God, where are you in this? Are you, are you turning your back on us for a moment? And the answer is absolutely not. We've got this incredible promise that for the Christian. God is working out all things for that which is good. I don't mean to minimize any suffering that you're going through right now, but understand, it is not for no reason. 
somehow God is working that out for the good. So in those moments when you're tempted to fall into the, the confusion of what's going on through, all around you, please remember Romans 8, 28. And one more, and you know, as someone who is who's oftentimes struggling with a sense of fear and a sense of anxiety, uh, sometimes I'll wake up and I'll actually be in that state. There's another passage you need to have at your fingertips. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We have an antidote here to fear and anxiety. When you start to feel that fear and anxiety coming on you, don't forget this passage and look at the antidote. Thanksgiving. First of all, be thankful. Be thankful for what you have. Be thankful for whatever it may be. Be thankful that you've got what you have in the moments. You've got breath, that you've got Christ. And then supplication. That means making your requests known to God, asking God to supply what it is you may need, whatever it may be. If you are in financial need, ask God to meet those needs. Uh, if you're in need of a new job, ask God to show you where that might be. And trust. Trust him in these things. You know, when those Israelites got to the bank of the Red Sea where we had, were reading earlier, they had forgotten how faithful God was. At a time like this, we have to remember. Remember God's faithfulness. And to sum this up, remember God's truth to avoid rebellion. Remember God's truth to avoid rebellion, a rebellious attitude, an attitude that res responds <coughs> excuse me, with, with fear and with anxiety. <coughs> and in closing, thanks for the water. I'm going to need that here in a bit. <coughs> in closing, I, I want to encourage you again to remembrance. And we tend to remember those things that we dwell on the most. And feelings may be leading you astray right now. So remember, this is a quote from Elizabeth Elliot. <clears throat> she said, if you dwell on your own feelings about things <clears throat> rather than dwelling on the faithfulness, the love, and the mercy of God, then you're likely to have a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Our feelings are very fleeting and ephemeral, aren't they? We can depend on them for five minutes at a time, but dwelling on the love, the faithfulness, and the mercy of God is always safe. Remember those things. Please pray with me. <clears throat> Almighty God, we are going through some weird times. And there are days where, at the outset, we may feel the fear and anxiety creeping in. God, And at night, when we're going to bed, we may feel the fear and the anxiety that creep in. God, please, 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 let us not forget your truth. Lord, let us choose remembrance as an antidote to rebellion, as an antidote to fear, as an antidote to anxiety. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. And thank you for all the signs that you gave throughout time that pointed to the work that you would ultimately do. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. I want to give you a quick reminder. Uh, if you are can and able to give, uh, you can do so two ways. First, you can go to our website, fbcsharedinwy.org. If you scroll to the bottom of that, that page and click Give Now, you can give online. 
or you can mail in a check to this address. You can make a check out to First Baptist Church of Sheridan, 3179 Bighorn Avenue, and that's Sheridan 82801. I want to leave you uh, with Psalm chapter 46, verses 1 through 3. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Hope you have a great day. Take care and God bless.